Well, I'll tell you something. It's getting pretty cold and windy where I live. So if it's all right with you, let's try and find somewhere hot. I've heard of a place way out across the galaxy. Do you want to come with? Welcome along to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. This is where we explore the universe and we search out some science secrets that are lurking undiscovered. Now this week we'll hear all about a brand new plan to introduce a unique creature to the UK. And for that, we need to chat to Bison Ranger Eddie. They're unlike domesticated cattle, they're a bit more wild, so... Whereas we have cattle on site here that we're also responsible for keeping an eye on and you can get nice and close to them and you can have a good look at them. About five metre distance we keep and we give them a look over. But when we go into the bison enclosure, we really want to keep a 50 metre distance because these are semi-wild animals at the end of the day. And if you get too close to a bison, they will, they'll let you know. <laughs> Also, we'll catch up with our microbe pals, Benny and Mal, who are looking at whether we can use DNA for pretty important things. DNA is part of our bodies, though, isn't it? Don't you think it's a bit, I don't know, icky to have that on file? Surely bodies should be private. I don't want to be on file. It's a very good point, Mal. Certainly, there are many people who don't like the idea of having biological information being used in this way or being held on file. But when it leads to so many crimes being solved, perhaps the small loss of privacy is worth it. And I've got your questions to answer this week on blurry eyes and flabby fingers. It's all coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. England will get a brand new national park. That's the plan as part of a new government set of nature pledges to give greater access and protection to the countryside. Natural England is what they're calling it. It'll consider a list of possible sites, which could include the Chilterns, which is near London, the Cotswolds out in the west of the UK, or Dorset down south. Also, the government has announced more money for national park sites. Many people say that current national parks, which are kind of protected places really, where that's just what they are. They are beautiful bits of landscapes, trees, forests, rivers, mountains, all that kind of thing. And people say there isn't enough money going towards these places to keep them safe. And we need more of that. So the government has promised this bit of money. Some people say it's not enough though. I'm very excited to find out what happens. Also, fragments from the asteroid Bennu that the US space agency NASA found, it's been sent to the UK to study. Do you remember this? NASA sent a a little rover kind of thing up to Bennu, which they say is the most dangerous rock in the solar system because it's got an outside chance of hitting our planet in the next 300 years. Well, they collected some rocks and dust from Bennu. They've brought it back. And now it's headed over to the UK. It's going to the Natural History Museum and a few other places to be studied to see what it can tell us about the origin of the universe. 
Scientists think that it'll help us with that because the materials on the rock likely haven't changed when they think the rock was made 4.6 billion years ago. So it's been around all that time. Really can't wait to find out what's happening. And it's amazing, isn't it? We see these things in space. We think, oh, there's a chance it might hit the Earth in a few hundred years. Let's go and see what we can do. And finally this week, the UK's first all-electric airline has signed a deal for 70 new aircraft engines. It claims it'll fly with zero carbon emissions. Now, EcoJet was started back in July by Dale Vince, who is an entrepreneur in the renewable energy sector. He's even been on this show. You can listen to that episode from a few years ago when we chatted to him about uh, green energy in football. And he's aimed to offer zero emission flights by 2026. This is a big deal because one of the things that humans do that most impacts on emissions and greenhouse gases and the climate crisis is flying because it burns a lot of fuel, pumps all that gas into the atmosphere. So if we can do that with zero carbon emissions, that's a brilliant plan. I'm interested to see what will happen with this new idea from Dale. Let's check in with Techno Mum then. She's one of our favourite gadget geniuses on the show, don't you know? She knows all about technology and gadgets and things that we use every day, how they are made, who made them, and how they might be changing in the future. This week, it's all about keeping warm, which is very good. I said at the start, where I am right now, it's freezing. I hope it's a little bit warmer where you are. And everyone likes their homes to be nice and warm, but heat can be used in other ways too. Let's find out. Techno Mum Fast Files. Most of us like our houses to be warm, but heat can be passed around to do all sorts of other handy jobs in our homes. Sometimes heat is passed around when hot things touch other things, like when the iron is pressed against your clothes to make them nice and smooth. Other times heat is passed through moving air, like hair dryers, or through water. If you're running a bath and it's too cold, you know adding some hot water will heat things up. One of the most common ways we use heat in our homes is to cook things to eat. Microwave ovens use radiated heat, moving heat in waves in a similar way to how the sun does. Why not count up how many machines use heat in your house? Technomom with the Institution of Engineering and Technology, advancing and sharing knowledge. All right, then, time to answer your questions. I love this part of the show. Love it, love it, love it. If there's anything sciencey you need sorted, make sure you let me know, as a voice note would be the best way over on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. I can listen, I can say hello to you, and I can do all that science digging for you. This week it was sent over to me on the website just as a message. Harry wants to know, why do things seem blurry when you see them underwater? Well, there are a few reasons, Harry, and it's all to do with how light moves underwater. You see, the reason that we can see things is because light hits an object and then it's absorbed or reflected by it. It's how we see different colours by materials bouncing back different length of light waves, which give us colour, right? Uh, Light moves one way through gas, but water is much denser than gas. There's a lot more stuff in it. So it travels at different speeds through liquids, which means the light waves are broken up in different waves. The particles in water scatter the waves, which means those colours hit your eyes differently at different speeds, which makes them look 
uh, unique and blurry a lot of the time. Also, light slows down when it travels through water and its path bends. That's called refraction. And it means what you're looking at seems at a different place than where it actually is. So that's why things are blurry when you see them underwater, because water is a lot denser. There's a lot more stuff in it and it's completely changing the way the light waves are travelling through. Here's a question from Jenny in Manchester, who's also sent it to me on the website. Jenny wants to know, why do your fingers go wrinkly when you're in the bath? Let's find out what's actually happening in your fingers. Your brain sends a message to your blood vessels, which are the veins, the arteries that run all around your body, the ones in your fingers. It sends a message to make them smaller. So because they're shrinking, it means, well, your finger isn't as big as it was. The skin doesn't have that much to clamp down on. So there's a bit of excess skin there. It gets flabby. So that's what's happening in your fingers. Why does your brain do this? Well, experts think humans have evolved this skill to make you better at grabbing and gripping things underwater. So way, way back, hundreds of thousands of years ago when we were cave people, maybe we would go swimming for our dinner, try and find fish, that kind of stuff. And we would need to grab onto rocks. And the humans that were better at grabbing onto rocks had a better chance of catching fish and a better chance of surviving. So that trait was passed on. We evolved the need to do that. That's what scientists think we have wrinkly fingers for to make us better at gripping stuff underwater. Jenny, thank you so much for the question. If there is something you want answered on this podcast next week, make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app, or you can find it by clicking the Science Weekly page over at funkidslive.com. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, this week we're learning about a brilliant project to create a safe space for a very special animal. Uh, And it's one that you might not think about too much if you live in the UK. Let's find out more with Eddie Murray from Kent Wildlife Trust. Eddie, tell us your job. So I am a bison ranger over in West Bleen. A bison ranger. Now, I know you're involved with a very special project with Kent Wildlife Trust who have partnered with the Wildwood Trust. But I just I just need to know, how do you become a bison ranger? Well, uh, I actually volunteered with Kent Wildlife Trust for a few years before I got this job. And I also did a year-long internship as well. So that's carrying out like habitat management with the estates team. So did that for a year. And uh, yeah, here we are. What's the challenges of looking after massive herds of bison over maybe looking after flocks of sheep or cows or other animals that we might have in farmland? Well, the thing about European bison is that around about the 1920s, they almost went extinct. So there are only about 12 of them left really in captivity. And so they used those 12 to replenish the population but it does mean that they can be susceptible to some diseases because their genetics aren't as diverse as you'd want them to be so this means that they need to be checked on every day if you can so you can keep an eye on their condition and their health and make sure they're moving and eating well so bison just at a very basic level just take us through the differences of the actual animal because i w- we don't see many bison out in the wild, especially where I live, wandering through the woods. So I, I, I don't know uh, as much about them as I do of other uh, creatures that we might see. So just run us through that if you can. 
So the bison are almost like big woolly bulldozers. So they've got these big, huge shoulders. They look like they've skipped leg day at the gym. It kind of tapers off down to the hips, but they've got these huge fronts. And it means they're like a giant wedge. And what they do is they they push themselves through the woodland and they can just break down like small trees and bushes. And they create these big open spaces with their huge bulk and They've got uh, horns and they get a big, thick, woolly coat as well. And yeah, very big, impressive animals. How intimidating are they as a creature? We can figure out how some animals might react if we get too close. For instance, if we're near cows, you don't want to get in between a cow and its child, really. So we know to stay away from that. What are bison like when you're there acting as a ranger trying to take care of them? So in many sense, they are similar to cows. They're large, you know, four-legged hoofed creatures, but they're a bit taller. So they can be a bit more intimidating in that sense. So the big shoulders give them a big height. And also they're unlike domesticated cattle, they're a bit more wild. So Whereas we have cattle on site here that we're also responsible for keeping an eye on. You can get nice and close to them and you can have a good look at them. About five metre distance we keep, we give them a look over. But when we go into the bison enclosure, we really want to keep a 50 metre distance because these are semi-wild animals at the end of the day. And if you get too close to a bison, they'll let you know. (laughs) So this is a big project, Kent Wildlife Trust partnering with the Wildwood Trust a few years ago now to create a bison conservation in a stunning part of the country in Hearn Bay, which is over in Kent in the southeast. Why, of all the animals, did you decide that bison should be reintroduced? And there's so much effort gone towards this creature. And as you said, there wasn't a lot around before this. No, exactly. Well, the thing is... In the Netherlands, they've been doing rewilding bison projects for, for well, almost about 10 years now. And they've been seeing real benefits from grazing their land with European bison. And also, they're great animals because, you know, not only are they grazing the land and they're chomping down the vegetation that we want them to, and they're keeping areas, you know, short, keeping uh, regrowth short when we want when we want open areas and they're but they're also smashing through dense areas because one of the things about the woodland is that a lot of it is about light levels and the woodland has grown with us you know us humans like we cut down a lot of the trees and this creates open areas and this is actually really beneficial to wildlife so you want the woodland to be a dynamic environment with different trees of different ages and you know different densities of vegetation and the bison are so good at just creating some open areas and they're, they're ripping down small trees and they're just, uh, they, like we said, we call them the Swiss army knife. They've got so many beneficial behaviors. And they're just slightly different to cattle in the sense that they don't smash around as much as the bison do. So they're just a little bit more aggressive, throwing themselves around and just uh, making the woodland a bit more of a dynamic environment. And they're just excellent ecosystem engineers in that way. Amazing. Uh, It's always great to hear about uh, different ideas that we're having to help not just where we live, but also the massive world around us. And it's been a real treat. Uh, Ranger Eddie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been really great. Thank you. This week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most mean, weird and strange and deadly things in the universe, we are headed deep into the desert to uncover the mystery of an extremely unique animal. 
There is an animal that lurks across deserts throughout the world which goes by many names. One of them is the camel spider. Another is the wind scorpion. Thing is, they're not truly a spider or a scorpion. They're actually salpugids, which are a type of arachnid. These ones grow to about six inches long. They're about the size of a teacup. Normally they are a reddish or a sandy colour and that helps them blend into their environment. They've got They've got eight legs, and they use them well. They can run at ten miles an hour, staggeringly quick for a creature like this. Now, they're strange because online, through the years, rumours have been spread around that these animals would eat humans who were maybe at war across the desert. Soldiers were terrified of them, or even that they would munch on camels. There were also myths that they were massive and that they could drag down huge mammals and that they could run even faster than they do. And I'll say it again, 10 miles an hour is very quick speeds to run at. Now that's not true, but they are beastly because their jaws are almost half as big as their body and they use them, snatching at the victim, grinding its jaws in a way quite unique. It crushes, it chops, it soars, its prey down to mulch. So this mysterious creature, not quite a spider, not quite a scorpion who has had many myths made about it, in reality, is quick, it's devastating, with a huge, powerful jaw, and that means the salpugid, the camel spider, the wind scorpion, goes straight on to our Dangerous Dan list. Before we finish up this week, let's check in with our microbe friends, Benny and Mal. They are tiny little microorganisms. Usually they live inside your body, they help digest and break down food, but recently... They've been helping us think about some tough questions, some demanding dilemmas. It's an ethical dilemma. That's a difficult choice about the right and the wrong thing to do. And this time it's all about forensic DNA. Benny and Mal's Demanding Dilemmas with support from Nuffield Council on Bioethics. All right, Benny and Mal here. Yeah. We're teasing out a few demanding dilemmas for you. Big word, isn't it? Dilemma. It just means having a difficult choice to make. You choose. Like whether to spend your pocket money on a comic or some sweets. Good example, Mal. And you might not know this, but an ethical dilemma is a difficult choice about the right thing to do. You choose. Here's an ethical dilemma for you. If the shopkeeper gives you too much change but hasn't noticed, should you tell them or keep the money? And here's where it gets really interesting. Some ethical dilemmas are about difficult choices we have to make about how we use science. You choose dilemmas about science. Not sure I get what you mean there. Science is all around us. It helps us do a massive amount of stuff. But just because we can do some things, well, that doesn't mean we should. Yeah, just because we could keep the extra change from the shopkeeper doesn't mean we should. Stealing is stealing, if you ask me. Oh, I really am up to my limit with that sound effect, Mal. Where was I? Ah, forensic DNA. We're at the scene of a crime. This house has been broken into. What a mess. How can you tell it's been broken into? Blooming neck, you'd never make a detective, would you? Well, for starters, there's a dirty great hole in the window and a load of broken glass. Don't touch it. That could be evidence. What? The glass? Yeah, but there might be fingerprints or DNA on it. That can be evidence too. Forensic evidence. Hang on, I know all about fingerprints, but DNA is like information inside our cells. How can that be evidence? Well, like fingerprints, 
Everyone's DNA is different, and scientists can capture that information and keep it on file. They can get it from hair or blood samples, or even where someone has touched something. Oh, I see. So if they could get a DNA sample from the crime scene, they might be able to match it with a criminal on file. But how could they be sure they get it right? It's a really accurate way of identifying people, even more accurate than blood tests. And it's far less tricky to get samples of DNA from people. But what if my DNA gets somewhere by accident, or if the people doing the test make a mistake? I mean, none of us are perfect. That's a very good point. <gasps> if DNA evidence is to be used, we need to be sure that it is accurately collected and analysed. The good thing is that it does lead to a lot of crimes being solved. It also goes the other way too. Some people who have been convicted and jailed for crimes can be proven to be innocent thanks to DNA profiling. No one wants to be punished for something they didn't do. DNA is part of our bodies, though, isn't it? Don't you think it's a bit, I don't know, icky to have that on file? Surely bodies should be private. I don't want to be on file. It's a very good point, Mal. Certainly, there are many people who don't like the idea of having biological information being used in this way or being held on file. But when it leads to so many crimes being solved, perhaps the small loss of privacy is worth it. That's what some people think. Others disagree. So, as you can see, it's a right old dilemma. A demanding dilemma. A positive brain-busting bioethical bamboozler. I wonder which side you'll agree with. Benny and Mal's demanding dilemmas, with support from Nuffield Council on bioethics. More from Benny and Mal from your gut into the big world of dilemmas next week. That is it for our podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Fun Kids Science Weekly. We are back next week with more adventures around the universe. If you have a science question that you want answered, make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. We've got loads more podcasts like this wherever you get your shows, Google, Apple, Spotify, on the free Fun Kids app or on our website too. And Fun Kids are our children's radio station. You can listen to us uh, on the free Fun Kids app or if you've got a smart speaker, wake it up and ask it to play Fun Kids. Fun Kids.